Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy and the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here, beginning the first episode of season six and episode number 54. I have a different bookshelf behind me now. I have a different reality. I've had my little yellow room. I've had being in front of the Molly D tree. I've been in my office and now here I am in my new office. So I'm, I'm sort of renting (laughs) some space in Virginia's house while they're in England. And so I record my podcast here now and I don't have to worry about somebody coming in. So behind me are all these wonderful books. If you can see me, it's Hugh's bookshelf. I'm in his office right now. So I've added some touches of Molly picture of her from the National Museum in D.C., a little girl named Mary who looks just like Molly. And then Gracie and Molly in a play. They were in Bugsy Malone together. And then a picture of Molly about a month before she died. That's a hard one for me to look at sometimes. And then two things down below, I have this beautiful sunflower picture with a dragonfly in it, painted by the lovely, lovely Elaine Emerson, who worked at the allergy place that I used to take Gracie to for allergy shots. And her son is Zach, wonderful Zach, the coach. And then Molly's saying her quote, her Instagram bio from right before she died. I'm going to slowly add, maybe make this into a bit more of a Molly B podcast recording area, but I just brought these things over with me now. It's nice. This house exists in a neighborhood that didn't exist when I was growing up. And when I was little, this was all woods. And there's a stream right down the road. And Suzanne Ward and I would spend hours in Anna Fine and Cindy Pendleton and Deb Resnikoff, so many people that lived up in this neighborhood, well, in the neighborhood on the other side of the stream, we would play in these woods all the time. And Suzanne and I would walk the stream. We would just walk up the stream. You know, sometimes we bring books and read. Sometimes we'd play games. We were white stag and running deer. <laughs> we had names. And the fork in the stream that we spent most of our time is right outside the window of this room. It's amazing to me. When I stand there, I can close my eyes and I'm right back where I was all those years ago, which is sort of a nice place for me to start this season because I'm going way back into my life and recalling some early, earlier times, high school and college primarily. And initially I thought I would just start with high school, but when I was at Concord High, it started in 10th grade and really high school for the most part starts in ninth grade. However, back in the olden days when I was growing up, middle schools were called junior high schools and they were typically seventh, eighth, and ninth. And then you went to high schools for 10th, 11th, and 12th. They were all this way. Most high schools in New Hampshire were not four-year high schools. They were three-year high schools. It's interesting. It's an interesting change now. Middle schools are really either five through eight or six through eight, and then high schools are all four years. And the other sort of tie into this is it's back to school time now. It's September. This will come out on the 13th and, you know, kids are back to school. So back to school time is incredibly difficult because Molly, Molly never got to go back. All I do is think about what she might be doing and all the, all the back to school days that you know, I used to think all the back to school days that she missed, but she isn't missing them. She's not here. She doesn't miss it. I miss it. I miss what I thought was going to happen. And that's a, a really big differentiation, I think, sometimes in grief when we think, oh, she'll never get to do this. Well, she, whatever she's doing now is probably 9,000 times better than this. 
but I'm sad that I didn't get to see her go to high school and graduate. So here I am in a place that I spent so much time as a child, a lot of middle school years here. Suzanne was a truly a lifelong friend for me. All the social navigations of elementary to middle to high school aside, she stuck by me always. This season will start when I was turning 13, which is the age that Molly died. There's a lot of connections here in terms of this season's going to go. I'm doing that David Kessler class, and I've talked about that before, the grief certification class. And this week's lesson was on integration, integrating the happy and the sad. And it's an amazing thought process. And part of what is talked about is, you know, when, oh, I'm so sad, you know, Molly will never get to do this. Well, Molly isn't sad about it because she's not here. I'm sad that she won't get to do it. So it's not that she's missing out. I'm missing out on watching her do something that I thought I would get to watch her. And it is a really good way, a really good way to rethink grief and loss and all of the things that I'm feeling around her death. It's super helpful. And it matches into sort of what I'm going to talk about here now. Today was a wonderful day. I've, I've been doing a lot more coaching at Amesbury. And, you know, that's a can be a bit of a time suck because I have to drive an hour to get there and drive an hour home. But the rejuvenation I get when I'm in that gym with those people is well worth it. I've always had a wonderful morning. It was a partner workout today, a really long, hard workout. It was great. It was just fun watching everybody and cheering them on. And then I'm doing an online CrossFit competition. And so you have to submit your workouts by being videos. So Coach B stayed and filmed me doing the two videos. And that was exciting. Another really good thing that's coming today, which is the 3rd of September, is Gracie's coming home from her two-week cruise. So I've missed her a ton. You know, so I'm excited to see her. And the timing of her return is pretty good because Kenny's mother, who's 95 or 96, I'm not quite sure, but, you know, she's been just living and living and hanging on and hanging on and just bemoaning the fact that everyone she ever knew is in heaven already and why is she still alive? And come to find out some of the medicine that she was taking was just really keeping her alive. And if she stops taking the medicine, you know, then she doesn't necessarily have to stay alive. She has refused medication and is, is really slowly starting to deteriorate physically. She had a stroke, so she can't talk right now, but she can hear things and she can squeeze hands and, and respond that way. So Kenny is flying to Florida to spend some days with his sister, Bobby, and his mom, which is absolutely necessary. So I'm a bit panic stricken that I find ways to get everything done I want to get done, but I'll make it work. That's what I'm going to do. So that's where I am starting off on all this, is that when I left the house to come here, my mom was playing with Jack-Jack. He loves to read books with her. Oh, he has a whole little routine. Kenny's making a big crock pot meal, so I don't have to cook for a few days. That's sort of where I am right now. It is what it is. It's where I am. This next season, I was, as I said, I was going to start with high school. But when I look at everything that I've talked about and the logical breaks in my life and the logical chunks of time, to talk about high school, I really have to talk about middle school because for my middle school experience, my runlet junior high school experience, that was seventh, eighth, and ninth grade. And so I can't really talk about high school and omit the other two years of that building where I was in school. So this opening episode of season six, a bit around middle school life for me. And what I'm hoping, other than just telling you, regaling you with stories of my middle school years, big deal. It was, you know, 40 years ago. No, more than that. <laughs> Long time ago, 45 years ago. I want to have you think for a minute about your own middle school experiences. You know, from newborn to like two babies or newborn to one, babies grow at an exponentially ridiculous rate. They go from these teeny tiny little five pound babies to, you know, 25 pound babies in a year and they grow and change so much. And that's why they sleep so much. And it's physically exhausting. 
The other major growth time, both physically and mentally, is adolescence. You go from a little girl or a little boy to an adult. And that process takes longer than a year. It's, you know, adolescence, the teen years. But so many things happen. Your bodies change and your brains change. And of course, again, sleep is the essence. And your circadian rhythms are different. People still sleep anytime, anyplace. Teenagers want to go to bed at midnight and sleep until noon. You know, and there's a lot of science that backs up that whole behavior. So think about when you were in middle school or junior high school, if you're my age, and who your friends were. When I think of seventh grade, you know, my life, my late elementary school years were when, when things really fell apart in my life abuse-wise. And so when I came into Runlet as a seventh grader in the fall of 1975, I wanted so much to be popular. Fry boots were popular, these big boots, gaucho pants. And I remember spending the whole summer just counting down the days until school started and wanting to make sure I had all the beautiful clothes and everything to wear. And I wanted to fit in and be popular. But, you know, middle school is just such a tricky time. And it was, wasn't set up like it is now. We just went from class to class. There were eight periods in a day. And you walked all over the building with all three grades. There weren't little clusters. You didn't have a group of kids that you all related to. You had guidance counselors, but there weren't too many programs that were just for kids, you know, to get you together. It was very, very traditional. It was like junior high school. You didn't earn credits. So if you failed a class, it wasn't like you had to stay back because you failed one class. But it wasn't like it is now. It really didn't take care of the emotional needs of adolescents. And middle school was tricky. So when I think of seventh grade, so many things come to mind. The clothes that I got, I had like a light blue corduroy jumper. <laughs> you know, I think of teachers. I had Mr. Lemmerich for math. I had Mrs. Gray for social studies. That year was a big transitional year. You're in school now. I grew up on Essex Street in Concord. It was about just under two miles from Runlet. And back then, two miles was the limit. So I had to walk. It was a long, long walk. Children in that neighborhood now can ride a bus. And I remember frozen boogers in my nose on the way to school. And I listened to this and I sound like my grandparents. I had to walk to school uphill in a blizzard. But when I look now at how many kids never walk to school because they're either bust or driven, it stands out to me that this was a way that, that adolescence was different back then. Probably when I think back to those times, all of your social life occurred in school unless you were involved in outside activities. And so lots of those things cost money. And so right there, you would separate out families that had financial issues. Those kids didn't get to do certain things. Then you had athletics. Now, I didn't do anything athletic because I was severely asthmatic at the time and didn't know. I was years away from knowing that I could run. I had asthma attacks in gym class a couple of times and actually didn't have to take gym for a while because I was had asthma. And, you know, asthmatic should stay still, which is completely opposite of what's true now. I remember Mrs. Kalichi and Mrs. Van Vliet, I believe, for home ec, cooking and sewing. These are things that I think all kids learn everything now, but it was just, you know, I just felt grown up. How this connects, you know, so I was 12 in seventh grade, as was Molly. She turned 13 at the end of seventh grade. And I know that at that time, you just start to feel like you're on your way to being an adult. You're on your way to growing up. That's how I felt. I was excited. I wanted to be grown up. And Molly's last conversations were this very thing. She was so ahead of me socially. When I think of seventh grade, you know, I just, as normal as it could be, you know, I, I would still, I was still at the, the hands of my abuser. And so that was, you know, difficult for me because, you know, still had to live that sort of scary life. And I never knew what was going to happen next and who might go away and who might show up to stay and what might or might not happen. And so you live a life of vigilance. And I would say seventh grade was that way for me. I was also getting to the point. So let me be clear about sexual abuse as a child. You know, it's wrong because it feels wrong. But, you know, when I was growing up, 
you know, in the seventies there as a well, late sixties, early seventies as a child, you know, there was no, none of this stuff was on TV. TV was like three local stations. You know, there were like 13 total channels. The amount of information that is at our fingertips now, the push of a button is astounding and you can find anything out, but it wasn't this way. And I remember a hairstyle that was going out of style right around seventh grade was a shag. It was called the shag and it's long in the back. And it was like a precursor to the mullet, I think. But then they went out of style and it was time now to get a new hairstyle. And, and Dorothy Hamill had been this amazing figure skater in the 76 Winter Olympics. And so I wanted the Hamill Camel. That was what the haircut was called. And I had really curly hair, so it wasn't the right cut for me. But this was a big thing for me. I remember, I remember feeling strongly about it. And I was at Peter's Hair Salon and I was reading a true story, these magazines that, you know, I didn't have a phone to play on, years away from being invented. And and there was a story in there about a girl that had been abused by a relative. And it blew my mind because all of a sudden it dawned on me that what was happening to me was actually illegal, was not supposed to be happening. At that point, so well trained and groomed to just be quiet that I didn't, I didn't know what to do about it. And I remember sitting in the, the chair and I just got really sweaty. The stylist was like, are you okay? And I'm like, I just don't feel good for a minute. And I went to the bathroom and I shook. I didn't know what to do with the information, but it started to dawn on me that, you know, I was 12. I was getting into be a teenager. My body was going to start changing more than it already was at that time. And so I knew the time had come that I maybe needed to say something and I just didn't know how to do it. And that was probably in, in like the spring of seventh grade, late winter, early spring. The summer after seventh grade, summer between seventh and eighth, I turned 13 at the end of July. That was the time that things finally sort of came together in such a way that I could let my mother know what was happening to me. And I left her a note one on vacation. I went to Pittsburgh, New Hampshire, way up north and stayed on one of the Connecticut lakes in, in this really beautiful place with cabins. And I was with Grandma's Butterfield and Grampy Max and Big Aunt Connie and Aunt Michelle, all my mother's sort of side of the family. And my mom was home with Jonathan and Johanna and Rick was home and my dad. And so I left my mother a note and I wrote it and left it in her little basket of scarves. And days went by, days went by. And I thought, oh no, she's read the note and she doesn't believe me or she's read the note and she hates me. You know, when you start to think about what you've been told will happen if you open your mouth. And so I just was paralyzed with fear. And so we went, it was 1976. And so we went to Montreal for a day trip and looked at the Olympic Stadium. The Olympics were over and it was such a big touristy thing. I was going to Montreal, listening to all that French, this big underground mall. It was an amazing day. And it was a very traumatic day because at that point, I believe my grandmother somehow found out, you know, you go to a payphone, you make a call to check on people. And I think there were certain phone calls. And and I realized that my mother had called and left a message that it was imperative that I call back. Now, landlines, and we're up north in northern New Hampshire. So dial phone landlines. Got very scared, didn't know what to do in it. So I didn't want to go back. And my grandparents were just befuddled with my panic and my behavior because I don't think anyone knew what, what the phone calls were about. So we got back. My big aunt Connie, I call her big aunt Connie because little aunt Connie is my other aunt. So Big Aunt Connie was, was my great, great aunt. And Little Aunt Connie, named after her, was my auntie. We have Big Jimmy, Little Jimmy, Big Aunt Connie, Little Aunt Connie. So that's how we do double names in my family. I got back and she was there and nobody else was around. And I think it was probably on purpose at that point. She said, you need to go talk to your mother. And then when you're done, I would love to talk to you. So I went and called my mother back. She completely believed me, believed me completely and cried and cried and cried and wanted me to know that she had suffered similar abuse. She made clear who it was and who it wasn't that had, you know, abused her. And I don't know how that made me feel at the time, confused maybe. I mean, made me feel like she understood how I felt. 
what stands out to me about that is that when I went back to the little cabin after the phone call, my big aunt Connie, who was so reserved and so proper, pulled me into her lap and gave me this big hug. And I'm sitting in her lap, which was bizarre because we didn't have that type of physical, you know, familiarity. And she just told me, what happened to you has nothing to do with you. It is not your fault. And when you're feeling terrible, say it to yourself. I never forgot it. And I've actually given that advice to children that are in tough places. That family I was talking about, the older child, really was struggling. And I remember saying to that child, this has nothing to do with you. Just remember that. But I remember, and my big auntie said, you know, you've taken enough showers since the last time that happened to you that all that skin is gone. It's a different body now. That was also very helpful. I mean, it's very simplistic because I still remember it and the feelings and everything else. But my mother believing me and my big auntie just commiserating so well with the fact that it wasn't my fault. I'm not the bad guy. The bad guy's the person that did that to me and that, that I'm not the bad guy was super helpful. And so the other piece was when we went back home, my friend Suzanne, I didn't want to go home. I didn't want to see my family. I, didn't, I just didn't want to see anybody. And so I stayed at my friend Suzanne's for a couple of nights. And so I think my mother must have told her mother because Harriet was super flexible and let me stay over two nights in a row, which wasn't as common then as it is now. And so Suzanne had twin beds in her room. And so sleepovers were easy. And so she, she asked me what's wrong, what's wrong? Because she knew something wasn't right. And so I told She's the first person I told other than my mother. She climbed in bed with me and hugged me. I cried. Actually, it was a pretty amazing, amazing interchange between two 13-year-old girls because, because Suzanne and I, you know, it was a different time. The TV shows were different. Everything was just more innocent, or at least outwardly innocent. We didn't have access to things that were innocent. And so that was the end of the summer of 1976. And then I went into eighth grade. And that's where I had some significant health issues. My asthma got way worse. I don't recall consciously not wanting to eat, but I became very, very thin. Eating made me very anxious. I don't like being hungry. So I don't remember like staying hungry, but I do know that there were a handful of times when I would be in the hospital and I felt safe in the hospital and I didn't want to be let out and taken home. I wouldn't eat. Nope, I can't eat. And I would go days, days without eating. You know, I look back on that now. We look at sexual abuse has two extremes, oftentimes physically the victims become very anorexic and thin, 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 or eat and eat and eat and try to hide behind a big giant body because you're safe in that body and nobody's going to want to touch you or hurt you because who'd want to? You know, the things that our minds do and tell us to do, it's pretty profound. So eighth grade for me was, was a turning point. It was a big shift. I suddenly now wanted to be more involved in things. I was still in seventh grade. I had plenty of activities. I had church choir and I had youth group at church and I played the violin and I was in the orchestra and I sang in the chorus at Runlet. I was very, very busy. I, I was in the play, The Wizard of Oz. I was Toto. I was involved, but still living that life of vigilance. And so I had a sense of freedom in eighth grade because the pressure was off, or so I thought. I had sort of a, a renewed sense of urgency to sort of fit in and, and get popular. <laughs> I also started gymnastics at that time. So I was never a good gymnast, I'll tell you right now. I started with gymnastics lessons, and I did them at the YMCA, which is where you did gymnastics when I was growing up. So all through eighth grade, I did gymnastics. And I met some amazing people in gymnastics, which was a lot of fun. I have a big list of them here. I think the Jennifer Peterson. Jennifer was in a family with, I think, six kids. And she lost her sister. It was eighth grade summer for her. So her sister had just gotten her license and was driving and had an accident and died in a car accident, Amy. And I remember how life-changing that was for Jen. How could it, how could it not be going to the funeral? And Ode to Joy was played as she walked in. And that was my 
was not my first. I lost Maura. But again, those, you know, the funerals happened and then everyone just disappeared. Annie Letterer. So Annie Letterer lived in St. Paul's. Her dad, you know, Richard Letterer is the father. He was a teacher at St. Paul's School. And he's written a couple of books and he had a big public, you know, talk show circuit. Not talk show, but he would go and do, do presentations on his books. He loved the English language. And whenever he came to speak, I would always recite poetry from memory because it impressed him so much. And Annie, his daughter, was one of those kids that was like five feet tall in first grade. And so people would assume she was older than she was. She was so young inside. And I can remember her struggling sometimes to fit in and feel comfortable. And she is now Annie Duke, and she's like a millionaire poker player. <laughs> I met Annie Twardell then. Annie lived in Hopkinton. Her sister, Karen, works in the Compton School District, so I've seen her forever and ever. Annie lives in New Zealand now, I believe, or maybe Australia, down under somewhere. We were unbelievably good friends. Ended up going to Bishop Brady High School. I was at St. Paul's. She lived in Hopkinton. And she was another one that was incredibly supportive of me through all of my issues around my life and everything. So at this time, my parents also divorced. So now it was my mother and the four kids living in the house on Essex Street where I grew up and my father moved out. We kept this a secret from my grandmother for some reason, my dad's mother. I just think that times were different. No one said anything, but divorces were printed in the newspaper then. Like every week, it was who was admitted to the hospital who was discharged from the hospital, who got married. It was, it was just bizarre. All that stuff was in the local paper. So my grandmother read about the divorce of the paper. Let me say, she was not happy and screaming and yelling. And I just had to sit there and smile and make believe that, you know, everything was fine. That was an interesting year. And Annie, was, I spent a lot of time during eighth grade with Annie. And I just got very involved with my gymnastics friends. After those few months of gymnastics lessons, this was also the year that I took tennis lessons once a week. <laughs> And at the end of the year, the tennis pro was like, nope, here, Sharon, have your money back. <laughs> She's never going to play tennis. Roy Weddleton, what a guy. In that eighth grade year, I was processing the fact that I was no longer going to be abused. And I was trying to reclaim a sense of normalcy. I was trying to be the Barb I thought I should be. And now, nowadays, we just know so much more clearly that you just have to be the Barb that you are. You know, then I just, what would have benefited me back then was the freedom to be what I needed to be as I processed what had happened to me and my mother tried to get me to go to therapy and I didn't find anyone I liked very much. So that was a tricky piece of that year. Sally's act. So Shelly, hi, Shelly. Sally, I met at gymnastics camp and she lived in North Conway. So I met Sally the following year, the summer after eighth grade. She came down to gymnastics camp. She stayed the whole summer, as did I. I was going to go for two weeks and then I stayed three, four or five. My mother came and was like a room mother so she could get some free weeks for me. It was amazing. When I think of how much money we didn't have, and there's my mother trying to you know, be a single mother. And she brings little Jonathan and Johanna out there and she has a room with bunk beds and she spends the week in Pembroke at the camp. It was up on the hill, beautiful on Center Road. Sally came to camp and that, and Sally and I are, have been lifelong friends. We had a number of years where we didn't speak. She lives in Alaska. We're just far apart. But her sister, Karen, is a theater director and she directed Bye Bye Birdie, which was Molly's last play. But her sister, Susan, is just, you know, connected to the family as well. For a while, so Sally lived with us. I'm jumping ahead a bit, but I'm framing who Sally is. I just became really close with her entire family. The Zach sisters, Karen, Susan, and Sally have played a big role in my life all throughout. So those people I came to know at that time. So Daryl Gallant, he worked at the YMCA in Concord, and he was the one that did the gymnastics camp in the summer and did all that, programmed all that. And he lived right behind me on Rufford Street, and I used to babysit his children, Dara and Devaney. Those were his children. His wife was Debbie, so the four Ds. And then they moved to Swampscott. He worked at the Marblehead Swampscott Wife for a long time. And then a woman named Ginny Sukalis, she was a gymnastics coach from the Laconia area, and she was phenomenal. And she stands out because 
during that summer, I was really falling apart around the, when it happened to me. And, you know, when the abuse stops and you leave the world of vigilance, all of a sudden the realities start to hit you. It comes up when it comes up. And so I would have these really bad sort of freak out moments. So I finally confided in her. Well, I needed to confide in her and I was just beating around the bush, beating around the bush, beating around the bush. And she shared with me a really painful story of something that happened to her. And once she shared that story, I was able to share more. And I'll never forget that either. These are, these are women who really lived in a time where as bad as it is for women now around sexual assault and rape and, and everything else, voiceless, so much more voiceless than now. As bad as it is now, it's so much better than it was. These are women that stand out for me. And also that these awesome sisters, Mitzi and Karen Garber, these are just people that they stand out. I remember them. And I remember, you know, the gymnastics. Kim Smallwood is another one. She went to Concord High. And she was involved, you know, all of us did, did the gymnastic stuff. And it was, you know, it was at the Y and then the Y bought this old St. Peter's school in the North End. And so we had some gymnastics there and going to meets. And let me just be clear, I suck. I'm not bendy. I was a good vaulter. And so much of being a good vaulter is, is having good running technique. And I had a great approach. That's a little foreshadowing to the running. I was okay on vault. I was okay in the dance portion of floor, but I had no tumbling skills whatsoever. And I was okay on uneven bars and balance beam, I was just terrible. <laughs> you know, I didn't really start gymnastics until middle school. And that's very, very late to start a sport like that because so much of gymnastics is proprioception and balance and muscle memory. And it's hard to teach those advanced skills the way that you need to know them starting, you know, in adolescence. That was a lot of eighth grade for me. So, you know, as you listen to me, think about the things that you were involved in. You know, so many of the people that I would become friends with did field hockey and soccer. It was field hockey and cheerleading. And I think that's it. Not much else. Track and field in the spring. It was no soccer for girls. Softball and baseball was all done through Parks and Rec, which it still is pretty much. So there was softball, but not related to the school. There was skiing. And I think boys and girls both could ski. And there was football for boys, not for girls. And there still really isn't. I don't remember wrestling. I think wrestling had not yet come to Concord. That came later. But I know for me, school activities, for me, I was in book club and German club when I started taking German those kinds of things. I was in those kinds of clubs, academic clubs. I did not have a, a big after-school life at Roland. I went home and did other things. I did gymnastics and swim team. I, I was still doing swim team at that time. I started that in elementary school. I just needed to be busy and busy was better. And so those are the, some of the things that I did in seventh and eighth grade. So eighth grade ended and I went back to gymnastics camp again. So like a spring, a summer, a full school year and a summer of gymnastics. And that's really pretty much where it ended. In ninth grade, I tried out for cheerleading, runlet cheerleading, because I thought, okay, I'm a gymnast and a dancer. I was taking dance lessons at the time as well from Sue Sardarelli. And then Miss Pam bought the studio and it became Capital City Dance. And now it's NV. So it's, it's a studio that's lasted since I was in high school. A dancer, a gymnast, it makes sense to try out for cheering. And so I did. And I did runlet football cheering, freshman football. So everyone on the squad were freshmen, I believe, maybe eighth grade too. I did runlet cheering. We had these blue skirts and white sweaters with RJHS on there. And we just cheered at the freshman football games because they were, it was called runlet football. Now it's freshman football and they wear Concord High uniforms. It was quite different then. So these were the things I did. And these were the things I got involved in. And these were the things that sort of kept me sane in my post telling my mother what was happening to me life. This was also the time frame in my life that I found out that Tom was my biological father. And again, I feel like all of these things happening all at once was either really poor planning or done with good intentions, but not necessarily the best thing to do. I had, I had so much on my plate already. I had had my hunches 
my mother and I would do a lot, a lot of late night conversations and late, late night talks and things like this. I had my, my doubts. I, I didn't really thought it was me so much as maybe Jonathan or Johanna, but I just thought that something wasn't matching up in terms of my heredity and why did I have this relationship with this person who loved me so much and did all these things for me. You know, So this was the time in my life that I found out who he really was. And of course, one more thing I'm not supposed to talk about. You're not supposed to talk about sexual abuse when you're being abused because nobody will believe you. And then you do tell and you feel free, but then you're told to be quiet because people won't understand. So you remain silent. And then I'm told that my biological father is not the one on my birth certificate. And again, I have to be quiet. So now I feel like I'm the keeper of everybody's secrets. And this was, in my mind, as damaging to me as a child as the abuse itself, because I was taught to weave a web of lies to create ideation of what was actually going on, to make something look a certain way, when in fact, that isn't what was happening at all. And a lot of my therapy in high school and college and after college, really, it was, it was about just honesty. I've talked about this before. My friend Amy, she also had a, a ton of abuse in her life, so she said. When she first moved to Concord, we became friends. We just confided in each other so much, and she's the one that... <laughs> decided that since I had once been a liar, I would always be a liar. I bring these things up because they come up. I know it doesn't really follow the story, but but what is so common with people like me is that we get accused of wanting to seek out drama. We get accused of being compulsive liars. We get accused of doing and saying things that we didn't do and say because we become easy prey for people who are drawn to people like me. You know, I bring up that situation with Amy because it played such a big role in what would happen with Roy and myself, my job and everything else. So here I am laying out the first of a thousand tiny steps to so many things that were going to happen to me later on in my life. I was taught to sit still and be quiet. That was sort of my MO for surviving the, the abuse. When I was being abused, I just made believe I was asleep and stayed perfectly still. It was just easier for me than trying to actually stand up for myself. I just didn't think I could. I will say toward the, the last time that anything sort of was attempted, I did say no, no. And that was when I knew I needed to seek out my mother and let her know what was happening. I had enough in my head that I knew I could, I could just say no, no, and create a situation where the abuse couldn't happen. And that was what sort of when I told. So now here I am as a high school freshman, I'm a football cheerleader and I feel like, okay, I've made it. And I'm really, really trying so hard to hang out with the popular crowd. So this is what reminds me of Molly quite a bit. And her last conversation with me was so meaningful. So I had friends, all different kinds of friends, but you want to be popular. I know that I always felt like the popular kids loved their lives and felt so popular and everything was great. And when you really talk to these people, especially as adults now, like when we'd go to high school reunions, nobody was happy. Nobody was happy. Everybody was spending hours to look a certain way. And I remember Selena Adams, hi Selena. She was the first one to carry a pocketbook. She had a pocketbook in sixth grade at Kimball School. And she had this beautiful hair and she'd curl it. It was all curly in the, on the bottom and the back. And it was all perfect. And her makeup was flawless. And I just thought, oh my God, She's so put together, you know, and, and then, you know, my neighbors, so in my neighborhood was Terry Cormier and Jill Dore, and, and they were more closely attached to the popular kids. And so there was two sort of factions of our popular group. So a lot of them came from Kibble School, which is the neighborhood that I'm in now, like they're really the old money in Concord. And then a lot of them came from Conant School, which was all the nouveau riche, the split levels and the ranches in the South End. This is significant because... How you fit in when you got to Runlet, you went from these little elementary schools to this giant junior high school, is you would gravitate toward sort of the cream of the crop from every school. But when you really looked at the friend groups, they were often not as integrated as you might think. And so I just remember really, really just wanting to be popular. And, and I was 
in some ways on the fringe of it all. I got to be really good friends with Kathleen Sullivan. We took German together in ninth grade and we became such good friends. And she was friends with all of the Conant school kids. And so I just felt so welcomed by her and so accepted. There was a girl named Margie Hicks that lived on West Street. She was another Conant school girl. And we became friends. And these were girls that were just very open. Deb Stanley. Now, Deb, my good friend Deb, she was Deb Owen then, was up in the Heights, but she was really connected to this particular group. All of us were connected in different ways. When I looked at look at seventh grade math, so seventh grade math, I had Karen De Palma in there, who's now Karen Vote. I had Deb Owen, who's now Deb Stanley, Bridget Ferns. We all had Mr. Lemerus in seventh grade math, and we became friendly. And even though our social groups were different, we would still maintain friendships. And so I had friends in every social group. And so I had friends from every group. And this is where the tie-in to Molly comes. Molly always felt unpopular because she didn't have a table in the cafeteria that she could sit at. She avoided the cafeteria as much as she possibly could. Teachers, she started a lunch club. She hated recess in, in elementary school and she hated lunch in middle school. Just felt like if you weren't in a set group, you were sort of like, what do I do now? The last really positively meaningful conversation Molly and I had, I was dropping her off two days before April vacation, so a week and two days before she died. And she goes, Mom, I think I have it figured out. No, I'm not in one group, but I'm not limited. I have friends in every group. So I could sit at every table. And no, I might not know what the conversation is, but it doesn't matter. I know enough about it. And I'm not so tied into that group that I'll be shunned if I sit over at that table with that group. And I remember saying, you know, Molly, it took me until my senior year when I tried out for a play and I hung out with the, with the drama club kids and I sat at their table. And they were all like, popular Barbara Higgins is going to sit with us. And, and I'm thinking, these amazing drama kids are letting me sit with them. It was one of those things. And that was, that was a big piece of remit for me, was really just beginning to become popular and to hang out with those popular kids. And I did. I, you know, I didn't fit in completely. Uh, dating, was, <laughs> dating was not a big piece of my high school reality. I, I was still a skinny, you know, braces. I looked five years younger than everyone else. I was thin, thin, thin. I had really bad complexion. I had my battles to fight, but I, I do know that that was the beginning of me sort of beginning to feel like I had a social group that was, was bigger than it had been and wasn't defined by my abuse. I also had a really strong church friend group, Becky Black, Suzanne Ward, Anna Furring. You know, we all went to St. Paul's and we sang in the choir together. And as we got older, those things, you know, pretty, once you get into high school, you can't be in a junior choir anymore. You have to go to the adult choir. And most of us just stopped. I sang in the choir for one year, but you know, it wasn't the same. And I, I really missed my friends and I missed the church life when I got to high school. But those were all big parts of my middle school experience. What does this have to do with a, a thousand tiny steps to Molly? Well, middle school, like for all of us, was a huge sort of volcanic time. You know, truths erupt and then there's lava that flows and then the lava decimates some things and allows other things to exist. And, you know, I really went entering into Rumlet. I was a silent, believe it or not, as loud as I am you know, timid, afraid little girl. And I left Rumlet to go to Concord High School, much more confident. I had a social group. So in the spring of my ninth grade year, being the cheerleader that I am, I tried out, y'all tried out a bunch of us and I made soccer cheering. So back then it was football cheering. And those were the really good cheerleaders, soccer cheerleaders and field hockey. We actually, Concord actually sent a group of cheerleaders to cheer at field hockey games, which I love. My mindset was, why should we just cheer on the boys? Why can't we cheer on everybody? There were no cheering competitions back then either. Cheerleading is much more of a sport now. It's, it's really much more than being at a football game. And being at a football game is to get the crowd going, but it's also a chance to practice, practice, practice routines that you will use in your competitions. And those cheering competitions are intense. It's dance, it's gymnastics, it's 
you know, pyramids of people. It's amazing. It's amazing what those girls and boys do. I made soccer cheering. Kathleen as a freshman made football cheering and she was so, so utterly blown away by the fact that she made it. And I remember we went to friendlies. We went out, we were in her sister Diane's car, I think. And we were so excited. We were just screaming as loud as we could and went and got ice cream. And we were so excited. And it was spring. We went by the Kiwanis Trade Fair. It must've been mid-May when these tryouts happened or late May. And so that was really, that was really, you know, junior high school for me. The summer after ninth grade, I went for my second year of gymnastics camp and I did not continue gymnastics. I didn't continue, but I had summer of 77 and summer of 78 gymnastics camp. And I loved camp. In the summer of 78 is when Greece came out. And so when you stayed over the weekend, all the campers went home, except the handful of kids that were maybe staying two weeks. And so weekends were fun. There were all these different activities and we got taken to the movie theater to watch Greece, which I love. That was exciting. I went out for ice cream after at that little ice cream place in Pembroke. But that was a chunk of my life that when I look at, you know, sort of what continues and how things evolved when I went to high school, certain things come to mind, being allowed to speak. And, and with all that's going on with Roe v. Wade, I know I bring that up all the time, but, you know, women having a right to vocalize and to not be subservient to the men that are either good to them or bad. You know, humanity is a bird and each wing has to be equally as strong or the bird can't fly. And it was very different back then. That was a time that I began to find my voice. I still hated my body. You know, I, I loved being busy. I got cross-country skis for Christmas that year and Suzanne and I skied. Oh, we skied Christmas day. We skied and skied and skied all through these woods here, which is what's amazing. I remember coming out on the road. There's a dirt road up here and I couldn't believe that this is where we were. It's amazing, these memories. I had the transformation anybody would have in middle school, but along with the normal, oh, I'm getting boobs. My boobs aren't as big as everyone else's and I don't have my period yet and everyone else does. And you know, all of that. I had all of the, the abuse going on and, and the fallout of that. In ninth grade, my parents had sort of worked out their problems and gotten me married. And I was mixed. I, you know, I never really was like oppositional. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to your stupid wedding. And I stayed at Annie Twardell's house. And she has cats. And I wheezed and wheezed. And they didn't, there were no inhalers back then. I'd go outside and then my wheezing would calm down because I wasn't near the cats. And I'd go back in and wheeze some more. And that was an intense, that was an intense year. But, but I look at ninth grade as truly getting ready for high school and knowing, knowing inside that I was going to be okay. <laughs> Having no idea what a way to be in high school. So I was a real late bloomer. Another thing that happened to me in my time at Rowlett was, you know, everyone wants to get their period. When I coached cross country for years, this happened when I was in high school with Neymar period. So I didn't get my period until like middle of ninth grade. Most of my friends had had it forever. I think me and Jen Peterson were the last two. <laughs> Sorry, Jen. Now it's like, oh, thank God. We want to have your period all that time. But we would name them. So you wouldn't have to say, you know, I'm having my period. You could say, you know, Susie's visiting. And my, my period was always named Sybil because it made me really cranky. And there was a book called Sybil about a woman with multi-personality disorder. And so that was another big shift for me, you know, in middle school or junior high school was that. I had some amazing teachers in junior high school, amazing experiences with those teachers. I had some that really checked in with me and knew who I was. Barbara Howell was a math teacher and she was she was just a teacher that could explain it in a way I understood. I hated math. It was just so hard for me to wrap my head around. And I think it's because I just couldn't focus. And so that was wonderful. Bob Cowan was my ninth grade English teacher. Fantastic. I sat at a table with Shelley Menarson. And I think that was Stanley. I think we all, we, we sat at a table together in ninth grade English. And I remember that really well. I, that was when I met Frau Crocker and began learning German. I think it was like it is for all of you listening, that you, you, you really start to take those steps into like adulthood and and all of that. I had my first kiss <laughs> in middle school as well, or junior high school age. I had a little fourth grade kiss with a kid named Joe. 
but that was, you know, you're nine. What do you know about kids when you're nine? And then there was that whole reality. When you come from a life of sexual abuse, it all seems bizarre and makes no sense. And back then, again, you didn't talk about it. Even in therapy, these things weren't talked about. Nobody really tells you, you know, how to use your voice and you have it now. I carried into my romantic life a lot of silence because I, I didn't know how to say yes or no, or, you know, I just, it was all uncomfortable to me and it was very difficult for me to stay focused. That's been a lifetime struggle. My transition from Kimball School to Concord High School, 10th grade. And that would be sort of a next big turn for me. Having spent my life as an educator, having gone through so many things and been an ear and a shoulder for many, many people around the things that they've gone through, I can say that my feelings around these years are that we need to have the perfect balance of giving our children space and being there for them, that we don't need to be up inside their business. We don't need to helicopter parent. We don't need to get over control. I know when we get scared as parents, or at least me as a mother, I, ah, I don't want to overparent and over control. In my situation, I often feel that I was told to be quiet when I should have been able to speak and that I spoke when maybe I shouldn't have. There was no guidance and there was no one to really sit and talk to me clearly about what had happened to me and how I could carry it with me in a healthy way. I can't undo it. In that book, Body Keeps the Score, so much resonated with me because of the abuse and you want to erase it, forget about it. And really that's what we were taught back then. Like, okay, it's over, you know, move on. Well, yes, it is over. And yes, we do need to move on and we can't erase it. And it happened. If we're only supposed to talk about the good things that happened, that makes no sense because the bad things that happened to us also happened. They're part of the fabric of our story. And it was difficult for me often to talk about these things. I had a terrible, horrible, wonderful, yucky, just as it should have been experience in middle school. And it set me up for what would become a very different reality by the time I graduated high school. So it's these little three-year increments. Junior high was three years, seventh, eighth, and ninth. When I was growing up as well, Bo came to Concord High School, but not until 10th grade. So Bo Memorial School had a ninth grade. So I have all these Bo friends that I didn't meet until 10th grade. That was another sort of exciting aspect of going up to Concord High. The other nice piece is a much shorter walk to school. <laughs> I lived much closer to Concord High School than to Runlet. And so that was exciting as well. So that's it. This is my first episode in my new recording studio. And I am excited to continue on with season six. As always, I'll try to tie things into Molly because I'm looking at so many of the things that, that occurred, decisions I've made in my life as an adult that really relate to how I was taught to make decisions. You know, one positive thing I have to bring up is I don't have a family that I spent a ton of time with, but holidays and summers was a lot of family time. And I have wonderful cousins and aunts and uncles that are my age. And they were a huge piece of sort of what kept me, what kept me okay through all of my child abuse years. And when the abuse finally stopped and I could, you know, talk about, try to have a more normal life. Some of my family are family by marriage, not blood related at all, but, but as close to me, if not closer than others. And I've talked about that before. And I really do feel in all of this, I had horrible things happen to me as a little girl, but I also had a wonderful family who loved me and I never went hungry. And had, you know, warm blankets and, uh, and heat in my house. Like I had, I had things that were good and I was always able to integrate the joy and the fear together in my life. I, it was never one of the other. That goes back to my grief class, my grief lesson this, this week, how we, we always want to use the word, but I'm so unhappy, you know, I've had a good day, but I'm sad. You know, like we put, but in there, like one discounts the other. And, and it's this conscious effort to use the word and. So I could say my middle school years were horrible and 
I made wonderful friends and had terrific teachers. You sort of switch up the dynamic there. You switch the balance. And I'm practicing that as much as I can. And self-analysis and looking back at, you know, 12-year-old Bucky Beaver Barbara. (laughs) And, you know, and then 17-year-old Barbara who graduated turned 18 that summer. So, so many changes, good and bad, that went through. I would love to hear stories about your middle school experiences. I would love to know what it was like for you. If, if you went to middle school with me and I've forgotten some really funny thing that happened, you need to tell me. I'm dying to know if you're younger, you know, Gracie's age or whatever. You know, I know middle school is different. Social life for us was, there weren't even malls yet. Like, let's ponder this. The mall of New Hampshire wasn't built until I was in high school. Our social life occurred, we went downtown or down street, we called it. So you had money and stores were open late on Friday nights. Thursday nights, they were open late in Manchester on Elm Street. Friday night, they were open late in Concord. And you went downtown and you walked up and down the street. You went into all the stores. You went the week to the Puritan, a little Puritan restaurant in Concord or Friendly's and you had ice cream. You know, then you went to Howdy's and got a hamburger. Like we went downtown. That was our social life in terms of like going out. We played in the park. KK put a picture of a merry-go-round. Oh my God, these metal merry-go-rounds. You could push those things so fast. They spun so fast, you'd fly off. Kids kids went to the hospital all the time to get stitches on those things. We went to the park at eight in the morning and came home at eight at night and there was no parental supervision. There were park instructors, playground leaders, lifeguards. There were adults in the park. But really, we were there with a bag lunch and a towel, no sunscreen, money for the ice cream truck. And we spent the day there. Our social lives were all in person. Talking on the phone was something that was a much bigger adolescent piece. I remember they got this really long phone cord. So our phone was in the kitchen, but the phone cord reached to the front hall. It reached to the TV room couch. It reached to the living room couch. It's hilarious. This big, giant, long phone cord. Because talking on the phone was the only way you could really communicate with somebody that didn't love it. And then you wrote letters. Pals were huge. And, and one thing I remember vividly from this time is you write a letter and you address it, mail it, walk to the mailbox and put it in. Then you have to wait. You have to wait the few days it takes to get to its destination. You have to wait for the person to read it, write back and mail back. That was always fun, running to the mailbox to see what came. And I guess that's like opening an email box now. What do I have today? You know, there's flyers, junk mail, right? Some of it's not any different than it is now. And then the other piece was just information. You had the news at night. It was six o'clock news and the 11 o'clock news. Then the TVs went off. So you had your local news and then they would give you some national news. And we were very willing to believe the newscasters. I think it was much less politicized then. But my life wasn't inundated with a barrage of information in real time. If there was a war going on, like the Vietnam War, I read about it in the newspaper each day, or I watched it on the news. It wasn't constant, constant, constant updates. The updates came as quickly as they could be given, but oftentimes that was flying information in an airplane from one place to another. It wasn't like it is now. There was no TV cameras filming things in those wars. We had Vietnam and the wars of my childhood. We also, without the social media, that external pressure didn't exist. You know, you've got magazines, the Sears catalog came and that's where your Christmas list came from, all the toys. And you'd look in the catalogs to see what clothes were stylish. And then you would go and try to find those clothes in the stores downtown. I know that I spent a lot more time reading than kids do now. Go to the library on Friday nights, especially if the weather report was bad. And I would check out like five books. And I remember the the librarians like, no, Barbara, you should check out so many books. But I didn't know if I'd be able to get back to the library anytime during the weekend. I often spent a lot of time watching Jonathan and Johanna, but I never quite knew when I would be able to get back. And the library was downtown right near Kimball School. And certain days of the week, I could walk home by the library and drop off the books. And I would oftentimes wake up on a Saturday and read. That's how I learned about World War II. One of my very favorite books was called Summer of My German Soldier. I went through phases where I read about different things. I read all the Trixie Bell mysteries. 
Nancy Drew mysteries. Oh, I read so much. And then I started reading like true stories. Like I read about the Bermuda Triangle and I read this book called Helter Skelter about Charles Manson. This is how I found out so much. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with movies and watching TV and, and watching a YouTube channel or, you know, a docu-series. It's fine. But what you're doing is watching someone, something that someone else's thoughts created. So now you're looking at the characters as what they, they should look like. According to the person that cast them, the best part about reading is the invisible pictures that you paint in your head. And reading was a huge escape for me. Not surprisingly, I, haven't, I wasn't able to do much reading after Molly died, no focus. I mean, I haven't read as much. But when I do read, I tend to sit down and read a book cover to cover. Once I'm in the story, I'm invested in it. So it's difficult for me sometimes to read like 20 minutes a night. I want to keep going. But I read so much. I was just an avid reader. That was a bit different. I belonged to a book club at school and we talked about the Great Books Discussion Group and I don't even know if they have book clubs anymore, social book clubs where you bring your wine and your yummies and you talk about a book you're reading, but it's a much more of a social event. I love, I loved reading. And Molly and Gracie, one of my favorite pictures of Molly is she's just on the couch, one leg crossed over the other with a book in her hand and reading. There weren't big gathering places for tons of kids. There were dances at the community center and Concord High School had dances and Runlet had dances. I remember in seventh grade, I got asked to a dance. And I was so excited when I was getting ready. The boy called up and said like, he couldn't go. And I was heartbroken. Cried and cried and cried and cried and cried. And I went anyway to the dance. And then he showed up and apologized. It was just bizarre. There were dances and those were, those were much more prevalent. Everybody went. And you had a date to go to those dances. You just went. Practice your awkwardness. Those are things that are quite different now. Now, lots more kids are in organized sports. There was such a bigger variety of organized sports that didn't even exist when I was growing up. And especially not for girls. There was no soccer team at Concord High School until my senior year, 1981. So I spent you know, most of my high school life where boys had many more options for sports than girls, and they've taken a long time to come. Adolescence, it's a tumultuous time, and it's supposed to be. It's how you get ready for the tumultuous times that will <laughs> exist in your whole life. I don't think there's training for what my adult life ended up being, but that's okay. It is what it is. I, I've had horrible tragedy, and I have great story. I have both, and I just have to always keep those two things married in my heart. So I'm going to end here for the fifth time trying to end. So welcome to my new office. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. Please, please, please reach out more. Subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on Pandora or Apple Podcasts. With Apple Podcasts, they keep track of things. And so I can get how many episodes are watched and who says what. I would love more comments. I get wonderful comments in my it's private DMs. And those are fine. But I really do want to grow my online presence. Do something nice for yourself, please. And then do not something nice for someone else. As always, thank you for listening and have a nice day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Tiny Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.